So we're going to start this year through into May. We're going to go through what is commonly known as the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Titus, and then Second Timothy. In your Bible is First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. They're going to take an order they were written. Um, and these were the letters that Paul wrote, uh, the last letters he wrote that we have. Now, we live in such a different world today. Y'all have access to so much more information that, you know, I remember just 30 years ago when I was a pastor in Laredo, you know, I remember I can't, nobody had access to anything unless you went out and bought books and commentaries. And, and now you got, you know, your phones, you can pick your phone up. And, uh, and, and uh, who, uh, a couple of us were talking about it a while ago. You have access to more information in your phone than and in 30 years ago anyone ever had anything. And you can just look up all sorts of stuff and read and all that. So a lot of people, a lot of you do studies and all that. So I need, I need to spend some time helping clarify things you may come across. Some of you don't care about this, and I get it, but let me just help through the process. And this will talk a little bit about Paul and to understand him. I, as I said, uh, Sunday, and I'm doing this nine-week series on Paul, and sometimes things kind of just work out where they, they kind of go together. Paul, Paul is probably one of the most brilliant men that have ever lived, and most people don't understand that. They don't understand just how incredibly influential uh, Paul was and still is to this day. Um, Paul's, Paul's education, you know, he, he was, you know, was born Saul in Tarsus. Tarsus was a tremendous intellectual center. I mean, they had universities. Um, they had so much higher education. And Paul would have been exposed to so much learning, not just in Jewish life, but in Greek. In fact, Tarsus was a Greco-Roman world and culture. And that's important because Paul is, you know, kind of the guy who goes to the, the Greco-Roman world and goes to the Gentiles because that's so much a part of his background. He would have spoke so Hebrew and Aramaic, which are basically the same thing for our purposes anyways. And uh, Greek probably had a little bit of Latin. Uh, he would have been exposed to things like uh, Greek philosophy, like Stoicism, uh, Epicureanism, all of those. But he, in fact, Paul tends to have some Stoic uh, tendencies in his life. I mean, he did all this a part of his life. And then he would have gone probably, and, and, I'm, and I'm cutting out all the debate parts. You know, but there's a ton of debate and discussion about all this. I'm giving you the best understanding of Paul's life. You know, and, and, and he went... And probably around age 13 to Jerusalem. He studied under a man who was brilliant in his own right, Gamaliel, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 5 as being opposed to, to persecuting the Christians. Probably had nothing to do with the death of Jesus. And so he would have got the highest quality of education possible for a young Jewish boy. I mean, Paul had everything going for him. And as a Jewish man and a young man, he was like a superstar rising. His Coming to Christ was a radical moment in the life of the church. Because basically, and, this, and, and, and Peter, you know, fantastic, you know, and all the apostles, Paul was different. His education level was different. His cultural experiences were different. His ability to connect to a culture that was part of the Greco-Roman world was different. Those other guys... They're Jewish Jews. I mean, they connect to the Jewish world, and that's it. I mean, they, they knew Gentiles that, you know, a little bit, but, but Paul was a different guy. And so this was a significant event. And so what you have with Paul is this amazing personality who comes to Christ with this amazing mind, and he spends about a 14-year period, and he's doing some things we know from Acts, but he spent about a 14-year period just taking the life of Jesus, connecting it back to their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and formulating an understanding of who Jesus is that will allow him the 
opportunity to go into the world to communicate and connect with people all different levels, all different educations, and all different cultures. And that is what Paul does. Probably about 48 AD, Barnabas gets Paul to come to Saul, at the time they called him Saul, to come to Antioch to check out the church because the church had been, you know, this is outside of the area of the Palestine and Jerusalem. The people who were coming to Christ were primarily Gentiles. Now, in Acts 1.8, we have the blueprint for the church. <clears throat> Acts 1.8 says this. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses. You will have power of the Holy Spirit. And you'll begin in Jerusalem. Then you'll go to Judea and Samaria. And then you will go to the rest of the world. Now, and a lot of those guys would go out to the world and things would happen. But the guy who would really make it happen was Paul. And it was Barnabas who got Paul to bring him to the rest of the world in Antioch. And they spent time there. And then Paul and Barnabas began a journey into the area that we would call Asia Minor. There it was, you know, we would call Turkey today. Back then it was Asia Minor. And began to connect with the Gentile world. Now, Sunday, I'm going to talk about all these Gentiles coming to Christ. I'm going to deal with all that then. It's hugely controversial. Paul ends up then going on two more journeys, a second and a third journey. And in those journeys, he goes basically around the Mediterranean, that was, well, the part of the Mediterranean and uh, the Aegean Sea and all that, that was surrounded by Greece and Macedonia and Turkey. That's his area. And he starts churches, he stays, and all this. And he does that for a period of not quite a decade, but it's about eight years. And in that time, he writes... In the order, and the order I'm giving you is not one that everybody kind of follows, but basically, he writes Galatians first. Now, some would dispute that, but he writes Galatians first. First and Second Timothy, excuse me, First and Second Thessalonians, First Corinthians, Romans, Second Corinthians, somewhere in that order. He gets arrested in Jerusalem. We talked about that Sunday, and he ends up eventually in Rome, in a prison in Rome. And he ends up in prison in Rome probably around 60, 61 AD. Some think it may be a year or two earlier, but he spends about two years there. The book of Acts ends there. Now, sometimes, because that's where the book of Acts ends, people think that's all we have of the story. And one of the things I shared a little bit Sunday, I think I shared. Uh, I can't remember what I shared from week to week. I can't remember from sermon to sermon. When you do four sermons, I forget sometimes what I told what group. I really do. And I'm sitting there talking in like the fourth sermon, and I'm like, did I say any of this about to say already? And so, you know, it happens. Now, I don't remember what I was going to tell you. So he goes in, you know, and they think that because Acts ends, that that's all we have and that, that nothing happened after that. People, people think just weird things, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. But in that time, he wrote four more books. In prison in Rome, he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, which is probably a companion piece to Colossians. So he writes those books. He gets released, we believe, and that's all we really know. But we still have three more books to account for. And we have to account for when did he write 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. So what I'm going to share with you is the basic conservative view of what happened and the view that I take and the view that I think you should take. You can read all sorts of things out there, but let me just say this. A lot of times when you read things that are radically different from what you heard, for instance, there are many people, and in fact, in the world of scholars, and, and I hate the term scholars, I use it, but listen, <laughs> you can have a doctorate and be either extremely arrogant, arrogant, ignorant, or deceitful. I mean, all those things. I see it all the time. Um, a lot of people with PhDs 
have a bias to go a certain direction. And they leverage their education to try to convince you they're an expert. And I understand that, and, and I get that. And as a guy that, you know, has a doctorate, you know, I, I understand those things. So I'm speaking against myself to some degree. But you have to be careful with a lot of things that people say because they don't always give you the whole story. And they're not always balanced. They almost always have presuppositions. There are some who would dispute that Paul wrote 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. And there are a variety of reasons, and I'll share with you in just a moment. But what appears to have happened is that sometime around 61 and 62 AD, Paul was released. At some point, he was rearrested under Nero. Now, Nero died in 68 AD. We know from a couple of early church fathers who wrote about it, and from some secular historians, including Josephus, that both Peter and Paul died at the hands of Nero towards the end of Nero's reign. So it's best to think around 66 AD. So there's a gap, it could be as late as 68, but there's a gap of about four to five, maybe six years of Paul's life. He, we know he wanted to go to Spain. We never know if he did. Some speculate he did, some speculate he didn't. But in 1, 2 Timothy and Titus, he does tell us a few things. He tells us that Titus basically got dropped off in Crete. Timothy got chopped off in Ephesus, that he went to Macedonia, that is area of Philippi and Thessalonica and all of that. He went to that area. He wanted to go to Miletus. He wanted to winter in Nicopolis, which is in you know, the eastern part of, uh, western part of Greece. We know certain things. So what we do assume is this, that he wrote 1 Timothy from Macedonia and probably Titus from Macedonia and then got arrested and ended up in Rome where he wrote 2 Timothy, and he told Timothy to come. They're going to kill me. You need to be here, and sometimes that happened. That's kind of that chronology that we tend to follow. And so I wanted you to kind of know that, to have this idea of when things occur. And I, don't, I know I don't ever put slides up on Wednesday night, and I don't give you stuff out, but you, know, you can have it. This is also archived. Eventually, you can go and read it all again. So here's what you have. You have, during the period between the end of Acts, and the death of Paul, him writing three books. These books are different, three letters, are different than the other letters. And because there are some significant differences in them, it causes some people to think he didn't write them. In fact, one of the prevailing theories is that these three letters was written in the second century by someone who took Paul's name. We call this a pseudepigraphy, a false writing, a false writer, to give clarity. And to, he took it so he could have credibility into what he was writing. You'll see this and read this a lot if you do studies. But most of the conservative guys will, will disagree with that. And they'll tell you it doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. Let me share with you some of the problems people will have in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Paul uses different terminology. We'll see that in just a minute. We'll do verse 1 and 2. We'll see that he says things differently. There are words that he uses for the first time in these letters that he didn't use before. His style had changes. He has different concerns than he had before. And this causes them to think that Paul changed some things. And so because, they also think that, you know, just by the nature of the letter, that it's that, is that way. And they, because you know, these letters aren't even, you know, mentioned in Acts, that's the reason. And so there's a lot of that that goes around. So let me share with you some things that I find fascinating. I'm, I'm going to give you some bias in my life that I have. I have found over the years that 
men and women who are scholars but who never pastor don't have a good feel for the New Testament. They really, they get so caught up in their academic world and their theories and philosophies and they got to publish and all that that they don't understand how the New Testament relates to people. The most influential scholars in my life, brilliant minds, also pastors. I mean, John R.W. Stott, I've used his name before. Uh, he passed away you know, a short time ago in England. Probably the most brilliant man that, I, that I've read was a pastor who can make things so easy. Today, in modern terminology, a lot of the younger guys, like John Piper, you may have heard of his name. He is a brilliant, brilliant scholar. He is also a pastor. John MacArthur, who many of you may read and know. Brilliant mind, a pastor. These guys know how to connect and communicate. I tell you that because... It's easy to get lost in the world of the academic. And you're surrounded by other academic people. And surrounded by other academic people, you come up with ideas and theories and you argue amongst yourselves. I am a member of something called the Evangelical Theological Society. You have to have certain credentials to get there. And I have the credentials. You may find that hard to believe, but what that means is I have the money to pay to get into it. <laughs> but I'm also a doctorate doctor. So uh, I go about once every two, every three or four years, I'll go to an annual meeting. I hadn't been in a while. I'll probably go next year. Oh my goodness. That's the most pompous people I've ever met. They print these papers and they, you know, they, then you get their paper and you're sitting there, you go to all these, there's hundreds of these papers presented and you go and they're talking about things. I'm like, none of that matters. Who cares about how you conjugate a verb in the middle of John's gospel that's different than anything. It has no impact on anything. It's crazy. And we do all that stuff. And some of you are in the academic world, maybe in the MSU or someplace, you understand that too. And that's what happens in this world. Here's an interesting thing about when people's styles change. Do you realize how much my style is different from 40 years ago, 42 years ago when I started? Of course, I, was, I don't want to go back 42 years ago because I was just horrible at everything. So 30 years ago when I was in Laredo, <laughs> I wore a coat and tie. Now, I, I never wrote my sermon. I've never written a sermon in my life except for seminary one time. But I, I had my Bible with me, and I read from the Bible. I had no notes. I didn't have any notes back then, but I had my Bible. And I uh, preached behind the pulpit for a brief period of time back then. And I preached very classical messages. I was a, I'm a classically trained pastor. And what that means is certain styles, certain forms, certain things you do. I am nowhere near like that today. In fact, since I've come here, when I came here, I would still read the Bible, even though I had this up on the, on the thing. I got rid of the pulpit. I read the Bible. And I always read it at the beginning of sermon. Y'all remember that? I would pick up, begin the sermon, I'd read the passage, put the Bible down, then I'd talk about the passage. Then I quit reading from the Bible, just a book, and the reason I did that is <laughs> the words were moving on the page, and I couldn't see them and focus. I was going, no, so I just read them up there. And then about two years ago, I did something crazy different. I had started to, to go through the passage in the message instead of reading at the beginning, and I asked Debbie, I said, I was thinking about doing that. Debbie said, it's much easier to follow you if you don't read the passage at the beginning, but you read it and explain it through the message. I said, really? I said, yeah. She said, yeah. So I stopped doing that. I also use different terminology. Now, I rarely use the word Christian or sinner or even salvation. 
No, I'll use it some. I don't know about it. Because those words don't communicate. Those are churchy words. So instead of Christian, I use follower of Christ all the time. Are you a follower? None of sermon Sunday, you're a follower of Jesus. Instead of using sinner, and I'll use the word sinner, I don't care. I say you are rebelling against God in your life. And a lot of times when I talk about salvation, I will say you have come to God through faith in Jesus. And you are forgiven. All I did is take descriptive terms instead of the old churchy terms. Now, you go back seven years when I came here to today, and you will think, that's not the same guy preaching. That's what people would say. Well, of course it's the same guy. A little older, a little grayer, still fairly, you know, good looking at the nursing home, you know. (laughs) Still popular down there at the Golden Acres. Understand that we have to allow for men like Paul to have movement in their life. Also, when I preach on Sunday, if I was to go preach to a group of stiff-necked Southern Baptist pastors, it'd be different. I'd use a lot of highfalutin terminology. I would flaunt my education to show them that I was vastly superior to them, both in knowledge and in preaching ability. I would. Oh, come on, man. I do everything I can to show them I'm a lot better at what I do than you. Because that's what preachers do. We're like middle school girls, man. We're pathetic. So 1 Timothy, written from Macedonia, and the issue at stake is false teachers. Now, I'm going to do something to stay through 1 Timothy that makes some of you uncomfortable. I'm going to do this the way, should, you know, and I tell you this, I'm going to go through this. In the, I'm a classically trained, which means this. I believe in the grammatical, historical, contextual way of looking at Scripture. I look at what the text says. I translate it. I know what it says. I know the context of things to say, and I let that guide my thoughts. Our problem too often as Baptists is we let our Baptist way of doing things influence how we understand the New Testament. And we're going to come to some scriptures, not today, that deal with pastors and deacons. You know, that's just the, this is the book that says what a pastor and deacon is supposed to be. You know why it's in there? Do you know why Paul mentions pastors and deacons here and nowhere else to qualifications? In Titus, he does elders. Do you know why? Do you know why deacons are never mentioned anywhere else except Philippians? And probably Romans, but we ignore Romans because it pertains to a woman named Phoebe, and we can't have that, so we skip over that. It's because they were messing up the church. They were teaching things that were wrong. And they weren't fixing the problem. And Paul says, Timothy, I left you there to fix it. You get those pastors. And you get those deacons straightened out. That's why it's there. We don't like to hear that. But that's why. It talks about women. Paul doesn't allow women to teach. In 1 Timothy, oh, we can't have women teach. Now, we ignore the part about other things that you can't do either. You know, like greet each other with a holy kiss. There's, a, there's things that we ignore, but women can't teach. Well, the whole point of that was the women were being led astray by the teachers that were teaching what was false. And Paul's saying, hey, you guys got to fix this. Here's how you fix this for a little while. In a world that you are a minority. In 1 Timothy, Paul talks about the sin of being a slave trader. Now, people say, you know, Paul never condemned slavery. There, he says slave trading is a sin. 
I mean, there's stuff in here that's unbelievable that we gloss over. And because we have certain Babish traditions, we want to make them fit how we think. I know, because I'm a Southern Baptist preacher. And I'm an expert at that. They were false teachers. So Paul deals with their false teaching and how they live their life. In fact, next week we'll talk about the false teaching a little bit and how they behave. Paul says, you got to fix that problem. He actually warned the church at Ephesus over in the book of Acts they would have false teachers. So what Paul does is he writes to Timothy. But in writing to Timothy, he's actually writing to the church. He's, Timothy would take, you know, take, take it in. He wouldn't have it like this. He wouldn't have English, Greek, you know, nicely bound. He wouldn't have it like that. And he, he would read what Paul wrote to everybody and say, see, I'm in charge. No, he wouldn't do that. But he would write to let them know what was going on. So here's what you have. And, and we'll look at this later on more. The false teaching is that there were guys, probably with the Jewish background, maybe some with the Gentile background, because it was mostly Gentiles too, but it was this mixture, and they were trying to keep Jewish law and keep Jewish traditions and genealogies, and they were trying to mix it in with the superior knowledge. So it was guys who were in the church saying, I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to teach you my brand of Christianity. And you need to listen to me because I know more than you. And they were leading the church astray. And Paul will fix that or try to. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and Christ Jesus who is our hope. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. Paul says, I wrote this. When people say that the author of the book of Timothy in Titus II Timothy was much later in the second century. What they're basically saying is that the guy lied. Because he's claiming to be someone who he's not. Please understand this. The early church completely rejected any pseudopic for any false writing. Anyone who claimed to be one of the guys. There's, there are tons of books claimed to have been written by Peter, by James, by Paul, by Thomas, by Judas, on and on. And the church rejected all. All of them. If they knew you weren't who you claimed to be, you were done. They'd have never accepted it. So he says, this is coming from Paul. He says, I'm an apostle, apostolo. To be an apostle is to be one who was sent by Jesus. It is a technical term in this case. You had to have been one who has been called directly by Jesus and has seen the resurrected Jesus. Last week we saw that. Paul was, saw the resurrected Jesus and was called by Jesus. He had the full rights of an apostle. The apostolic era ended when John, the brother of James, the cousin of Jesus, the apostle died at the end of the first century. No more apostles after that. No one is an apostle today. I know there are churches, they have apostles. No, they don't. They just call them that. The apostolic era ended. But the apostles left something behind. We call it the New Testament. This is one of those books. He says, here I am. I'm an apostle of who? Christ Jesus. He uses his title, Christ, and his historical name, Yeshua Jesus. He says, according to, on account of, the commandment of God. So he links the calling of Jesus with the command of God, and then he calls God our Savior. You don't see God referred to as Savior very often. In fact, 
Paul does it in the pastorals and really doesn't do it in his other books, which is why some people think it's a different book. He uses different terminology. Well, it's okay to use different terminology. So let me put it this way. If Joe and I, you know, and Joe, by the way, is pretty close to finishing his doctorate. He made a foolish tactical error in doing his doctorate. He asked me on behalf of his seminary to be the one who makes it a final determination whether or not he gets it. (laughs) Joe's not going to have much money when this is all over. I can have a conversation with Joe that I would not have with you in terms of terminology, in terms of my say. Logically, God is our Savior. He doesn't use that a lot early on, but neither do I use the same terminology from seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. Sometimes we change, and some situations change. It's still a true statement. And of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. The word hope speaks of an eschatological or an end times thing. In other words, Jesus is our hope for all eternity. The concept of hope within the Christian faith is not wishful thinking. It's not, man, hope cowboys have a good season. I'm praying for the cowboys. God help Dallas. I know you love Dallas. I don't know why you've not let them win a Super Bowl. I know you're letting the pagans and the heathens win. I know that. Maybe it's Jerry Jones, but God, can you look past that? We have hope. It's not what it is. The word hope is the confident assurance. It is the knowledge. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? Three things remain. Faith, hope, love. It is part of the salvation experience. I have hope. I, I, I have hope that when I die, I'll go to be with Jesus. That's not wishful thinking. That is the confidence assurance. It is eschatological. That comes from a word that means end, a study of that which is at the end. It means our view of what's at the end. Not the millennial reign of Jesus and whether you're going to miss the tribulation. My goodness. Hopefully, you came to deep fry last year and got that fixed. <laughs> it's the knowledge that when everything is said and done, We're going to be with Christ. That's the hope. That's the blessed hope. The blessed hope isn't missing tribulation. Christians have always gone through tribulation. The hope is eternity with Jesus. To Timothy, my true son. The word true means genuine. Now, Timothy was the product of a Jewish mom and a Gentile daddy. So Paul here is probably making some reference to the fact, not that he adopted him, but he's his son. It's a connection. He's my son in the faith. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He's my son, my son in the faith. Now this is interesting. This is one of, the, one of the reasons people question whether Paul wrote this. Because normally when Paul talks about faith, he's talking about the act of trusting. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves is the gift of God. Faith is the act of trusting. Here faith is like the faith, our faith. Oftentimes, I talk about Christian faith. So when I, when I use the term Christian, a lot of times, and I'm going to do it this Sunday, I'll use the term Christian movement or Christian faith. I'll say things like, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're thinking about coming a part of the Christian faith, you need to become a follower of Jesus. I use the term faith in connection to Jesus and our understanding of him. This is our faith. This is my faith. 
I have faith and I have a faith. Paul is talking about the a faith. It is the faith that resides in Christ. It is our system of beliefs and understanding. He says grace, mercy, and peace. Oftentimes he says grace and peace, but here he has mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace are not things that you can quantify with a number. I don't have a little bit of grace. I don't have a little peace or a little mercy or even a little faith. I have all the grace there is to have, all the mercy there is to have, all the peace there is to have. I just don't always live that way. See, I have all the mercy. God has simply forgiven me. So some of us live that way. I have all the grace. There's no more grace left to give me. I have all the grace there is to have. I just don't always use it. I don't always live with it. And one of the things about being saved is, you know, I'm saved by grace, through faith. Grace is something God gives. I have no say in whether God gives me faith, grace. I have no say in whether God gives me faith. I don't always, people don't always exercise that faith. They reject faith. You can read, here's something you need to know. This is a freebie. <laughs> and I'm going to open a can of words before I stop. You can reject faith. You can't reject grace. Do you know that? Grace is the gift that God provides you that makes your salvation possible. He gives you the faith to believe. Many people reject faith and say, I choose not to believe. But you can't reject grace. If I give you a gift and said, here it is, and I wrap it up, Oh, I said, here's a nice gift coming from me. And I give you that gift. That's grace. You can't, it's yours. I, I walk away. It's yours. You can't say, no, I don't want the gift. It's already gave it. But what you cannot do is open it up. I gave you the great gift, but you have to have faith to trust me and open it up and take the cashier's check for $10,000. But you can't walk away and leave it. The gift was given. It was never realized. We have all the grace there is when God gives us grace. All the mercy. All the peace, that Jewish term, that peace with God. I'm no longer at odds with God. Except I'm still fighting. And notice what he says. Grace, mercy, and peace are from God the Father in Christ Jesus who is Lord. The Father and the Son who is Lord. Holy Spirit, we'll see you later. Now, I'm going to stop there. So here's what I suggest you do. Read sometime soon 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy together. One time. It'll take you 15 minutes. Some of you, okay, 30. But and then before we come again, read all of 1 Timothy. You should read 1 Timothy as long as we're in 1 Timothy, about once every two or three weeks. When we get to Titus, read it. Titus is three chapters. I could read Titus in five minutes. It's so short. And same thing with second. Just read those. Be familiar with those. Okay? So I gave you a lot to think about. Said a few controversial things. I like to do that and back to do all that stuff. Mess with your mind a little bit. God bless you. And no, you can't ask me questions about it.